This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and we're very glad to have with us today Dr. Tony Slater, who is the Director of Pediatric Intensive Care at the Lady Salento Children's Hospital in Brisbane, Australia. Tony, welcome. Thank you. Tony, um, you're an expert um, in acuity scores. Uh, there's really only two principal acuity scores that are used around the world. And um, you were responsible in the early stages of the development and validation of the PIM score. I wonder if you could take us through um, what drove the development of it, what were you thinking about, and what are some of the issues that we need to consider in um, acuity score measurement development? Well, thank you. I guess to set the scene, um, the main reason we're interested in, in uh, predicting outcome is really as a means to assess the quality of care. And you know, this is uh, a landmark article in JAMA by Dr. Donabedian who sort of outlined the, the three prongs to assessing quality of care. Uh, assessing the structure uh, of your system, the process of care, and also the outcome. And this is a third one where um, having some way of adjusting outcome for severity of illness is, um, is what uh, these, severe illness models do in intensive care. So mortality is a, a key outcome of interest in intensive care, but we need to adjust for the risk of mortality. And in our field, we um, use a number of things to adjust the risk, the degree of physiologic disturbance, uh, the diagnosis or reason for admission, and also pre-existing conditions can uh, alter your risk of, of mortality. Um, and this slide really just illustrates the principle of logistic regression. We're all familiar from high school of uh, fitting a regression line to some data. And on the left, we've got a linear regression, um, fitting a, a line to uh, the relationship between hardness and strength of steel. Uh, the problem with uh, outcome to uh, such as mortality, to model that is there's really only two outcomes. It's a dichotomous variable. Uh, so logistic regression takes the, uh, the risk factors and fits a um, statistical model against those two potential outcomes, which we can see the, the shape of that um, model on the, on the right slide. So, so we've had interest in developing a model for paediatric intensive care, the paediatric index of mortality. Um, this work commenced in 1988 and the aim at that stage was to simplify the, um, the alternative model which was available at that stage which was the, um, the predecessor to PRISM um, called the Physiologic Stability Index uh, and that was uh, where we started uh, with an with a aim to simplify uh, what's required to um, predict outcome. So with the first version, we um, collected information, on a large number of variables on 800 patients and tested that a couple of years later. And uh, we're a bit disappointed when we came to test it in a new population. So there's uh, another period there where we continued to work on the model. 
um, with transforming the physiologic variables, trying to get better fit between the, the variables we were looking at and the outcome. And then collected another group of patients uh, in all the units in Australia and the Birmingham Children's Hospital um, and validated that in 1994, which was the basis for the first version that was published, um, uh, PIM. Um, around that time, we started collecting it routinely in Australia and New Zealand. The ANSPIC registry was commenced in 97, and the first three years of that endeavour, we used to recalibrate and improve the model with, with the publication of PIM2. And just last year, um, we updated another major revision with PIM3. Uh, so the goals were to, um, to have a simple uh, system where we used data that was routinely available at the time of admission. Um, important principle was to assess the risk at the time the patient was admitted to intensive care, uh, and therefore not including anything that was, reflects how you're treating the patient. Um, where possible, we wanted to, um, to capture the data at the place of first contact um, in many systems, including our own. Um, our intensive care staff you know, leave the hospital, go to another hospital to um, stabilise and transport a patient. Um, so you know, we wanted to define the, um, the way this was assessing the patient, was standardise that to the time the ICU first met the patient. And another goal was to have a simple system and also to have it readily available in the public domain. And Tony, as a point of clarification, so if your transport team goes out to stabilize the patient, so time zero begins when your team is there, whereas if the patient's referred from another facility without your transport team or any of your clinicians being involved, time zero doesn't begin until that patient's inside your ICU, is that correct? Um, yes, nearly. The, we had to, um, to cater for different systems. So, you know, in our um, environment, New South Wales has a, a different system where their specialist paediatric transport team is always um, a team that's, uh, that's uh, functionally separate from the ICUs in Sydney. Um, but, you know, it's a specialised team really doing the same as uh, transport teams in other jurisdictions. So the way we've phrased this is you know, contact with a specialist paediatric transport team, the first contact. So if, it, if you're in a system where you're not providing that, so long as it meets those criteria, um, it's that time. It's, it's not, um, you know, if, if you don't have a specialist paediatric transport team and there's some other uh, mechanism for transporting the patient between the hospitals, um, then that wouldn't, um, that wouldn't count. You wouldn't include data from, from that setting. The other um, setting where it's important is if we get involved as ICU staff in treating patients in the emergency department, again, it's um, the first contact we have with the patient. This was the first version of PIM, and you can see um, there that it's uh, identified a number of risk variables that we're using in the model. Um, probably better seen there. Um, and some of these, um, you can see there is a transformation of the way the data is presented. Again, that is to, um, to get the best relationship between that particular variable and outcome. 
So for blood pressure, we take um, the difference between 120 and the actual measured blood pressure, the absolute uh, systolic blood pressure. Uh, we take the inverse of the usual ratio that um, hypoxia is assessed. Usually it's assessed with a PF ratio. Um, there's a better relationship between um, oxygenation and mortality if you take the inverse uh, of that. Again, there's an absolute base SX, so that's similar to the blood pressure. Um, if you're you know, minus 10 or plus 10, it has that same effect. It's the absolute difference from zero. Whether you're ventilated in the first hour, whether you've got a number of high risk or low risk conditions, whether you're in elective admission, whether you're admitted following recovery, uh, for recovery following a procedure or admitted after um, cardiac bypass. Tony, among these uh, variables that um, were determined to be influential in your score, I noticed that some of the variables are negatively weighted. Uh, could you describe for, for us what, what the significance of that is? Well, in uh, these models, if you have a negative coefficient, it's actually reducing your risk. Um, I'll show in a minute the way all this is um, uh, used to calculate your risk of death. But, um, you know, if you've got a very low blood pressure, um, that's obviously increasing your risk, um, and the, the coefficient is multiplying that degree of hypotension um, uh, and adding to your risk. Whereas if you're admitted electively, um, then you know, given the same degree of physiologic disturbance, you're at lower risk. Um, so elective admission uh, reduces your risk. So here's an example, um, a child with hypoplastic left heart syndrome that was admitted to the intensive care unit uh, for recovery from surgery uh, after an elective NORD procedure. Uh, at the time of admission, the child was ventilated. Uh, the first systolic blood pressure was 55. Um, the PaO2 was 110 in uh, FiO2 of 0.5, a base excess of minus six. The pupils were reactive. And in this particular patient, there, any, there weren't any low risk diagnoses. So all that information is um, put into this uh, equation called the logit um, and each one of those variables has a coefficient. That, um, the coefficients are multiplied by the variable and you come up with uh, a number for the logit, in this case minus 1.4. It's a fairly meaningless number at that stage but it then gets transformed in the logistic regression equation um, which you can see there um, and after um, that transformation, it gives you the probability of death of 20% uh, in that patient. So Tony, uh, one of the questions on, I think on everyone's mind is, um, when you, you calculate the score on an individual patient, um, is this meant actually for aggregate data and really a population understanding of the quality of a unit's performance, or can you take this individual score on this hypoplastic patient and, and make individual decision making for that patient? And for that matter, in your own practice, do you do that? Do you take a PIM score and say, you know, I, I think all things considered, in addition to the PIM score in this patient, it's going to uh, somehow influence my thinking on this patient? Um, that's a, a good question, commonly asked question. Um, and you know, the, the short answer is this methodology is nowhere near good enough to use at an individual patient level. Um, you know, that's indicating um, that, you know, if you have um, 10 patients exactly the same, 
um, that two of them won't make it. Um, and you know, we have not enough information feeding into the system to work out uh, which are the two that aren't going to make it and which are the, the eight that will. Um, so you know, quite clearly this shouldn't be used at individual patient level. It's, uh, as you suggest, it's, the aim of it is to, um, to assess the performance of a, of a unit or you know, generally the outcome of a large population of patients. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world, and could you first leave your city and country that your PICU is located in, and could you tell us, in your PICU, do you routinely track SMR? If yes, do you use PIM or PRISM, and which version of PIM or PRISM do you use? We are back now with Dr. Slater. Dr. Slater, um, one of the questions I'm sure a lot of people are wondering is that in the uh, process of deriving and then validating this uh, acuity measure, uh, most recently PIM3 in 2013, we know that it has to go through a number of rigorous steps, and, and we often hear um, calibration, discrimination as concepts. Could you take us through what, what are these concepts, calibration, discrimination, what, are the, what do they reflect, and how do you think about them? Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. They're important components of of validating these scores. Uh, so discrimination is the ability of a, a score to separate the population into those that uh, those are going to su survive and those that won't um, discriminate death from survival. Um, essentially the um, patients are, are ranked in risk um, and then uh, you create a curve like this, which is plotting sensitivity against one minus specificity. Um, the receiver operator curve, or rock curve, um, and the area under that curve is a reflection of how well the model is discriminating death from survival. Um, so if it was a perfect score, if it was right every time, um, that curved line would actually be out to the edge um, and we'd just see the square with an area under that of one. Um, and none of these models have um, an area of one, but in terms of assessing whether this is a, a good model or not, if the, if the area under the ROC curve is greater than 0.8, it's regarded as good discrimination or excellent discrimination if it's above 0.9. In terms of goodness of fit or calibration, um, this concept is about assessing the fit of the model in, um, in different subgroups. So, commonly at different subgroups of risk or different diagnostic groups, different age groups. Um, the one that's commonly um, reported is uh, reporting across the, um, the severity of illness um, and this is usually the Hosmer-Lemeshaw test where um, the population's gro grouped into 10 groups um, of increasing risk and then you look at observed and expected mortality in each of those subgroups. Uh, and look at how well it's fitting across the range of severity. Um, there are limitations with this technique. Um, the test itself is somewhat unstable, especially in smaller populations. Um, and so there are alternatives, and one of the good alternatives is just to, to look um, at the raw data of looking at um, how well the relationships uh, are matching up uh, in tables and, uh, and figures. Um, so this is an example of PIM3 calibration, um, looking at expected uh, mortality against observed mortality, and you can see here there's quite good calibration across the range of severity of illness. 
So this slide illustrates um, the issue of you know, fit across diagnostic groups. Um, it is also uh, illustrating the effect of what happens over time because you know, in this study we looked at both PRISM and PRISM3 and PIM and PIM2. So you can see that um, with the subsequent generation of the scores um, uh, you get a better fit as you would expect. Um, so here if you had a, a perfectly performing score you'd have observed versus expected uh, number of deaths and so the um, DSMR which is uh, the axis here would be one and the, the bars are in indicating the confidence interval. So you can see with all the patients a much larger group, the confidence intervals are narrower, um, really relating to the number of deaths. Uh, if we look at respiratory, for example, um, the open triangle is PIM versus the closed, uh, of closed triangle of PIM2. Um, and you can see that with PIM, uh, the mortality prediction was uh, predicting too many deaths. And so that was one of the reasons we added uh, the new variable in PIM2, which was low risk conditions, and there are a number of respiratory conditions there um, with very low risk of death, um, bronchiolitis, coup, obstructive sleep apnea. And until we had sort of marked that as a specific group uh, where they were at very low risk, they were having the same, um, same effect as uh, patients with you know, much higher mortality. Um, so that was one of the things that was adjusted and you can see with that adjustment, the fit in respiratory disease um, was much better. The group down the bottom uh, is quite problematic. This is uh, non-cardiac surgery and the mortality in that group is, as you know, is very, very low. So uh, it's quite difficult to um, get good fit in that group. And with PIM2, we added um, recovery from a procedure um, um, to try and improve the fit in that subgroup. Dr. Slater, I know one of the issues that comes up is um, whether you should um, deploy this acuity measure, PIM3, uh, in, um, in small unit environments where uh, perhaps the total number of missions, but more importantly, the total number of deaths is low. And um, in that environment, the acuity measure might not actually, that model might actually not work. Is, is, that, is that true, that um, in small um, intensive care units, where the number of admissions and correspondingly the number of deaths does make the use of this model problematic? Um, yeah, that is correct. Um, you know, I guess we've got to um, take into account the um, natural variation that's occurring here and you know, there'll be natural variation uh, in mortality and if you've got um, a very small number of deaths um, then your, your prediction uh, will have associated variability with that. So, you know, you're right, it does relate to the number of deaths, not just the number of patients. Um, so we always recommend that if you're calculating an SMR, you calculate a confidence interval around that. And you will see that if you do that calculations on small number of deaths, the confidence interval is very wide, uh, which, will, um, which will give you an indication of, you know, how confident you are in the result. Uh, and you, know, you won't be particularly confident if you're doing the calculation on a small number of deaths. The, one of the ways around that is to look for longer. Um, so if you are in a small unit and only have, you know, say, 10 deaths a year, um, you should still be doing this, but you, know, you should 
you know, track all your patients over several years um, and then you'll have more confidence in, in the result. So Dr. Slater, um, the whole goal of this, uh, as you noted in, in the beginning, is to um, monitor, measure performance. How do, you, how do you use it in a systematic, rigorous way as you would want it used uh, by those of us uh, colleagues around the world? We explained how you use the variables uh, in each patient to calculate the risk of death, but uh, what we're really interested in is you know, the number of deaths expected uh, for a population. So the way you do that is you take the um, estimated probability of death in each patient uh, and you sum them. And that gives you the expected number of deaths for that population. Of course, you also know the actual number of deaths that occurred. So the ratio of the two, the number observed to the number expected is your standardised mortality ratio. Um, if your outcome is exactly as expected, the SMR will be one. If the outcome is worse than expected, the SMR will be more than one. If it's better than expected, it will be less than one. And as we were saying, we need confidence intervals around that uh, calculation. And if those confidence intervals include one, then we can say the, um, the outcome's not statistically significantly different from, um, from that that is expected. It's also important to realise that um, the benchmark is not fixed. Uh, we can't rely on comparing a unit to what was published uh, several years ago. This, um, this slide illustrates this, uh, which is highlighting the change in the SMR in Australia and New Zealand uh, over a decade or so. And you can see that there's been a steady decline in the, uh, the SMR from the population overall. Which means, and another way of saying that, is that um, outcome is improving. We're now um, having fewer deaths than we would have expected to have uh, based on uh, the population in the uh, late 90s uh, where PIM2 was developed. So these models should be regularly updated. Uh, it's important to uh, track where your unit or your region is against an international standard. But there's also benefit just to make comparisons within your region and you can do that more frequently. Uh, in Australia and New Zealand um, we're monitoring continuously, so each year or each two years uh, we generate a local uh, calibration which does two things. It means that um, we're comparing ourselves just to like units in our region and it also means that um, the population we're, uh, or the benchmark we're comparing to is recent and current. Um, so for example, um, we've just published PIM3, that will be the international benchmark uh, for the next few years. Uh, but this year we'll also generate locally um, an ANZ 2014 version of PIM3. This, this slide illustrates one of the changes with PIM3. Uh, traditionally we've used uh, blood pressure as the absolute value from 120. Um, if it's used as a quadratic, which on, on the right it shows uh, fitting systolic blood pressure using a quadratic function, which is blood pressure and blood pressure squared, uh, you get a better relationship with outcomes. So there's that minor change to that variable. And we also re-looked at um, the specific conditions that either increase your risk or decrease your risk. Uh, we added seizures to the um, group of conditions at low risk, and we added necrotizing enterocolitis and bone marrow transplant um, to the risk 
to the group of very high conditions and we've also split um, the high risk into high risk and very high risk. Um, the difference there is a, it's a coefficient that is um, there's weighting these variables and uh, previously we've given the same weight to all those conditions whereas um, uh, with this version we've giving two different ways, depending on exactly the, the risk group you're in. This slide illustrates that it uh, is used internationally. There's a number of reports of, of performance in different regions. Um, and you know, depending on the population health and the type of patients, um, some of the, the outcome is quite different from Australia and New Zealand and the UK. Um, so you know, in some of these regions, there would certainly be an argument to doing a local calibration if you had a population big enough um, uh, to do your own fit of the model in your jurisdiction. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask you to first leave your city and country that your PICU is located in and ask you this question. Do you locally calibrate data from your unit to assess quality of care? If so, how often do you calibrate the data from your unit over time? So, uh, Tony, but one of the questions, of course, arises is that, you know, when you're comparing between units, uh, it can be a very sensitive thing. You want to know that you're relying on data that's uh, rigorous. How do you present um, the SMR or uh, these variables uh, across several different units on the same table? Uh. Well, we think the best way to, um, to describe that is with uh, funnel plots. Uh, one way that's sometimes done is to create a league table where you rank the units from, um, from top to bottom. Um, and there's a, a problem with doing that because the confidence you have in those ranks um, is really not great and if you look at this slide which is essentially a way of graphically creating a league table um, you can see you know, they are ranked but there's enormous overlap in the confidence intervals. Um, a better way of doing that is the funnel plot. Uh, as you can see here uh, we've, we've plotted essentially the size of the unit, in this case the expected number of deaths on the x-axis um, against the SMR. Uh, and you can see variation still, but your eye isn't caught by a rank. It's the, really the message is, you know, are you within the control limits? And the, the funnel is the um, two and three standard deviations of the, um, of the SMR. So if you're within the funnel, uh, you're travelling okay, and you should start to be concerned if you start to, uh, to lie outside those control lines. Another useful way of of looking at the results is to uh, con construct sequential control charts. Uh, here you construct a chart for your unit, so it's a within unit comparison over time rather than um, uh, between units, which is what you see on the funnel plot. So here's an example of a relatively simple uh, sequential control chart where each patient is plotted in sequence and um, we're looking at, again, observed versus expected deaths, and the y-axis is the, uh, the number of excess deaths over expected. And you can see that the, there is an accumulation of excess deaths. Uh, one of the difficulties now is 
knowing when you should be concerned, how many deaths is too many excess deaths. So here's another version of a control chart where it's the same, same concept of plotting every patient in sequence, but we've changed the y-axis with the transformation cumulative log likelihood ratio. You don't need to focus too much on that, but what it adds to this now are those um, control lines and essentially they're um, adding a concept that after each patient you're testing a hypothesis, are you different from the population or not? So we've got a, uh, a level of 0.05 or a level of 0.01 uh, at which we're testing that hypothesis. There's a theoretical problem about um, retesting a hypothesis after you add every single patient um, and doing multiple tests on the same group. So the idea has led to this chart now, but we've actually realised the, the lines are good thresholds um, to give a signal, but they no longer are truly giving you that, um, that true probability uh, because of that flaw of, of repeated testing. So here we've got a, the same sort of sequence uh, control chart. Now the same lines are there, but they're just there as a concept, as a, a signal, sort of a uh, medium and a higher alarm threshold um, to be testing your patients in sequence. Are they different from the population or not? And there are two, two lines you can see. The top line is actually testing that you're worse than uh, expected, which is something you should be alarmed about. Um, the bottom line actually is testing are you better than expected. You can see for this particular unit that it has crossed the first line and hit the, um, the alarm signal there of, uh, of more deaths uh, than expected at that particular alarm level. The graph then gets reset to zero once you've hit that alarm, which is why it comes um, down sharply like that and the testing goes on. And so this is now adding another years uh, of information to this particular unit and you can see that, that whatever it was uh, the trend was still a concern, the, um, the excess uh, mortality was continuing for a little while but it wasn't um, set by the testing. Uh, you can see the, um, the excess mortality continued and the graph continued to rise but then something turned around and it's um, returned to zero and with continuing monitoring at that point you've um, be uh, concluding that this, this unit has returned to the control. And here's an example of this type of analysis uh, being applied after the event um, to the excess mortality that occurred in paediatric cardiac surgery in Bristol. So the two different lines are different data sets and the f first and second um, threshold lines are the lines I've shown you on those previous graphs, but we've then even got uh, lines equivalent to uh, 1 in 1,000 or 1 in 10,000 uh, probability that this occurred by chance. And you can see you know, after the event that something could have been identified uh, much earlier than it was in Bristol. So just to recap, the sequential control charts track outcome in every patient over time. Their focus is on uh, changes within a unit over time. But they're still uh, providing an assessment against the national benchmark because underlying this is the equation that has been set um, as, the, as the benchmark for outcome. I'd like to turn now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. 
In your response, could you first please leave the city and country that you're located in? And the question is this, do you compare the data from your PICU to other PICUs in your country? If so, how often and what techniques do you use for those comparisons? We are back now with Dr. Slater. So, uh, uh, Tony, one of the things everyone's wondering is what, what if you do get a signal that you, um, you have an excessive number of deaths? Um, how do you know that you've got a, a true problem versus uh, perhaps you're in a high acuity unit that's got pockets of uh, clinical programs that were never part of the derivation or validation set, and so it's unfairly uh, assessing what could be high quality care. How can you distinguish between the two, and what do you do? Yeah, that's a number of important points there. The, um, the results, um, when you first get them, um, are really there to give you some insight and to trigger another series of questions. They're not the absolute answer of um, how does your unit compare on a performance basis. A series of things you need to look at. Um, the first one is the data clean, and you know, this is pulling data on a number of different variables, and if even one variable is miscoded or you've got a new data collector who's interpreted a particular question in a different way, um, applied to all your patients that can um, have a systematic effect uh, and give you a spurious answer. So you look, need to look at the integrity, the completeness and the accuracy of the data. Um, then as you suggest, you need to look at um, the pattern of deaths that have been described. Were there preventable factors in those, which I guess is the key thing we're looking for. Is there something in the system of care that can be identified and changed? Um, you do need to look at the group of patients and uh, you're right to suggest that if you've got a uh, cohort of patients uh, in your unit with a very high mortality that is different from everybody else, then you know, there may be an adequate explanation there. It doesn't mean the model's wrong, but you do need to always have in your mind you're comparing your population to the population in which it was developed. And if there are differences in the population, then that may be an explanation for why your results are different. The other things you should be looking for are the, the systematic things uh, over time. So, you know, if you do see a, a change in outcome in your unit where previously you'd been tracking well, you need to look at the, has there been a systematic change in the way the patients have been, been managed. In summary, the, the information, the SMR or control chart doesn't give you an absolute answer or prove a point one or the other. It should be a stimulus uh, for you to go and look harder at your patients, harder at your unit and the stimulus for further inquiry. So in summary, we've covered the principles of how you start from risk factors um, and generate a probability of death in each patient and then take all those patients and generate an expected mortality for your unit and then some techniques of how you can compare your unit to uh, similar units or the, uh, the international benchmark. Uh, these models do change over time, it's important that they're updated and recalibrated uh, and we've looked at some techniques of, of how you can display your unit results against other units, uh, for example in the funnel plot or to follow your unit over time, for example, with a control chart. 
Well, uh, Dr. Tony Slater, um, this has been a wonderful overview of um, an incredibly important concept uh, in the field of pediatric critical care that's often uh, not very clear to many of us. Um, and I should also add that it's a wonderful thing that uh, you've put this in the public domain uh, so that uh, any intensive care unit across the earth, in theory, could be using these um, acuity adjuster scores. So um, thank you very much. Um, well, thank you. Um, it's important to acknowledge the other people who've contributed to this, uh, particularly Professor Frank Shan, my mentor, who was the director of the unit when I first started training in paediatric ICU and gave me this as a project virtually on my first day of my career in critical care. Um, and many of the, uh, the concepts underlying uh, the development of the model um, come from Frank Shan. Um, also important to acknowledge all the uh, hard work of people collecting the information. Uh, acknowledge Lance Straney for his work with the most uh, recent iteration and also acknowledge uh, the UK group, uh, Roger Parslow and Gail Pearson, uh, because it really is this collaboration between the UK and our region that's contributed to the development of PIM over time. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.